If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey folks, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Scott. Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. Uh, we're so glad to be back. Um, we have a somewhat of a better mic set up this week. You guys are so patient. Did you tell them last week that I had that freaking beep thing going in the charger? I didn't Did you say anything that? about it. I'm... I was just imagining listening back to the episode of people like looking around their cars, like <laughs> thinking, what is going on oh in my, my car? God. You know what? If we had planned that as a prank, that would have been... It was our Halloween prank. Uh, yeah, that you. was yeah, that's it. It was our Halloween prank. It was on purpose. You know they have that on Amazon. Actually, they sold out on Amazon. There's a thing called the Destroyer, and it's a tiny battery operated sound emitting thing that can be fit in you can slide it under upholstery, you can that's hide it. Awful. But it puts out an inter <laughs> an intermittent beep. So oh. that it's never consistent enough for you to be able to find it. Oh, my God. Uh, Drive people crazy. I would want to use that on somebody, and I'd be so gl- worried about the <laughs> the karmic um, repercussions. Mm. But, yeah. It's sold out, It's right? sold out, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so welcome back, folks. Uh, we are finally getting, I think we even mentioned the center a year ago when we first started this. And it's hard Probably. to believe it's been I a year. I feel like we've said it so many times yeah. that we're going to get to this topic, and we finally... Buckled down and did it. Right. But here's the advantage to waiting so long is that really there's no excuse if you haven't seen it. If you're listening to this podcast, I I cannot imagine that you haven't seen it. So we're not going to be giving any spoilers out. Right. Right. But um, so the way that this week's episode uh, relates to that is, Shiloh, take it away. Well, we're going to be talking about the concept of dissociation and... And good for you for pronouncing it correctly. Oh, thanks. How do a lot of people pronounce it? Disassociative disorder. And it's not. It's dissociative. There's not that extra syllable. Yes. And when you type it a million times, you get it. Because I kind of wanted to type it the wrong way uh, (laughs) when I was typing up notes. But there were two really great series that we felt depicted this. And one being episode, or I'm sorry, season one of The Sinner with Jessica Biel. Um, that was on our radar right, right away. Try and say that three times fast. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the other is a true crime docuseries that probably everyone has also watched, was, which, of course, is The Keepers, which has an even more uh, powerful and realistic um, example of that. Yeah, so. the, the Keepers really takes you on a journey that I, I was not familiar with it. I mean, I, that's that's a rare thing with all the media saturation and stuff that you can watch these days. But I was really surprised that I did not know the story and I had no idea where it was going to go. Right. Like I really didn't right. know it was going to go there. Yeah. So we're going to talk about dissociation and just kind of the evolution of it a little bit first, and then we'll get into just relating it to those series. And before we start, 
Mm-hmm. We got to talk about what I lucked into. I know. Two weeks ago. Yeah. OMG. And I never say that, but OMG. So my buddy, David Rodriguez, who was my boss when I was still working in production a million gazillion years ago, um, out of the blue called and said, Hey, do you want to go to, I've got a plus one to this event. It's a literary award and you should join me. And like my daughter can't go. I'm like, it's their open bar. Of course I'll go. (laughs) So we get there and it's amazing. It's like, it's a whole broad spectrum of literary awards for amazing poets, uh, people who are doing political activism in their writing. Uh, I, I just can't say enough great things. I like I Wei was there who is just a massive force in literature in today's world. And it, it was called Lit Fest. Lit right? Fest, yeah. And it was put on by Pen America. It Pen America, yeah. And um it had they have a great website and mm-hmm. I highly, highly uh recommend people to check it out and My see. My brother who... was a um Was not, he a nominee, he was a nominee for Dodger Blue? Yeah, he was a nominee for a Pen America Award. Wow. Yeah, that, his book amazing. Dodger Blue Will Fill Your Soul, short story fiction. I did not know that. What uh-huh. you, oh, we went to see, because he read, when was that when it was published? His signing uh, two years ago now? Oh, God, the time goes. Yeah. That was so good. Yeah. But where where was this gala held? Uh, it was in Beverly Hills at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Um, really great setup. Good catered food, by the way. I'm very judgy about catered food because it's your, usually rubbery chicken. You showed a picture of the uh, butter balls dish, and I'm like, it's fancy. If they got butter balls, <laughs> it's fancy. I tell you, I'm doing keto. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm just, just, just eating butter. And it looked like there was an iPad on the table for everyone. I'm like, were they giving away no, iPads? <laughs> you know what, they're, that what they do is they set those things on your table so that you can donate money. Oh, yeah, it's a little so, interactive. Yeah. And I was so blown away by the end. I actually was like, I'm going to donate money to this organization because they're doing some really cool things. But the amazing um, one other, I mean, that alone was a great experience. But I had no idea that the hosts were going to be the absolute royalty of True Crime Podcasts, Karen and Georgia from My Favorite Murder. Yeah. I was like like fanboying so bad, like banging on David's arm going, no, dude, you don't know. You don't understand how amazing these women are. You don't, you don't understand. You don't get it. Trailblazers. Yeah, seriously. So So, how were they as hostesses? Just phenomenal. Just like completely, you know, it sounded like a little bit of it was scripted, but they were, you know, completely spontaneous and, and really quick, exactly what you'd expect. Very quick on their feet and, you know, lovely women, by the way, like totally decked out and like evening wear and looking awesome. So I had to go and like, I have that moment, like as a casting director, I ran into, you know, I interacted with celebrities. I mean, I never, I didn't do the high end stuff, but Mm -hmm. like I interacted with celebrities and I, I kind of don't, you see them out here or when you're working in the industry, it's like, it's becomes sort of normal. So you don't get that impressed. I get impressed by the people that I have like sort of fanboy intellectual crushes on and you know these two women definitely fit the bill and i was talking to david i was like we just gotta please 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 let me go try and go backstage so then i'm trying to compose myself after two drinks (laughs) well maybe maybe three drinks okay and i um all of the words came out in a rush i'm like 
Hi, I'm a forensic psychologist. Isn't that I have the a worst? Oh God, I just sounded like such like a such, doofus. I'm a doctor, a doofus. I promise. Yeah, I'm a real, I'm a real doctor. And they were so cool. Georgia was immediately like, "What you do? What?" And like the, I mean, they were just, just so incredibly friendly. And um, I, it was really, you know, we sat and we talked for a bit, and then we were taking off, and they were kind of walking out at the same time. And then someone stopped them, and then we, like we awkwardly, I awkwardly stopped as if I was waiting for them. Right. And then they were like, "Oh no, we're 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 staying. We're talking to them." And then I felt, you know, like. So, and I was just standing there like an idiot going, oh, well, yeah, uh, have a good night. It was really nice to But Which is totally, it's so awkward. they were really wonderful. And I was a, an awkward dweeb, but like it's all done with great fanboy. That's awesome. Crushes. Yeah, it was. I knew was they were going to cool. be hosting that. I saw that on a message board months or weeks ago, I guess. And then when you said, oh my God, guess where I'm going? I knew exactly <laughs> what it was because I had looked it up and I knew it was like, hundreds of dollars a plate yeah, you know seriously. to get a seat to it um but how cool yeah it was really really cool and so um they you know we'll probably be talking about them a little bit more in the future too because they have several several things that overlap with what we do and they have they actually have a very interesting take on a couple of things that I want to check out so anyway we'll get back yeah. to that but now we're going to be moving on with dissociation so to get started on this subject, um, it's it's a fascinating and challenging area with a lot of controversy. Dissociative disorder, or as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual calls it, DID, uh, used to be called multiple personality disorder or split personality. We don't use those terms anymore because uh, it's pretty much become a consensus in the psychiatric and psychological community to to do away with that, to realize that that's not really a thing. There are aspects of it um, that fall under this broad category of dissociation, which would mean being separate from self. Right. In the same way that, like, we were talking, the, the alienist is a person who studies a person who is alienated from themselves. Yes. Except in this situation, the theory is that the personality, and I'm using that term very loosely, maybe identity is better is a, is a better term is that due to trauma that the identity splits off into protective units that each play uh, a particular role in a person's psyche. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of controversy. My own experiences is like, I'm going to be right up front as I know you and I have talked about this forensic psychology in itself that is a subset of psychology of clinical psychology and has as wide a spectrum of pursuits and focus foci than the, as any other area of psychology. Absolutely. So I'm not going to say that we're experts on this area, right? No, I mean, not at all. In, in doing the research for this, I reflected on just my own history of uh, working in mental health for 10 years now. And oh, so that's a good question. How many cases have you come across? I don't, I, I would really have to go back and think of like what would fit the criteria for this. Right. But nothing comes to mind. But strangely, in the last few weeks, I've been exposed to a couple of cases that I could say, oh, yeah, that was a dissociative fugue state or something of that nature um, with the population that I currently work with. So that's really interesting, too. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. Because we're talking about law enforcement yeah. personnel. So and well, high level of stress, high level of trauma. 100%. Absolutely. High, high stress, multiple stressors going on at the same time. Okay, so when I was working in prison, well, we'll come back to this later, but when I was working in prison, there were several inmates in the mental health system who definitely appear to me to be invested in presenting as having a diagnosis of multiple personality disorder for legal reasons, for, um, for the purpose of, uh, accessing benefits within the mental health system in prison uh, or perceived benefits that they feel like they would not have gotten in, in general population. But so we'll just, we call that term malingering. Yes. So when there is some sort of secondary gain to be obtained by pretending essentially to be mentally ill in our realm of work, we call it malingering. And and, um, and God help you if you don't back yourself up in a report, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, and, documentation and where I is work, so important. The government agency where I work, is like, it is such a dirty word, and yet it's real. People oh, sure. malinger. But sure. you have to... You have to Boy, you better have your ducks in a row um, for making that statement because it can come back and bite you. Well, and there's now assessments you can do to test for malingering that I used when I was working with the parole population because they're all lying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's different than just lying. I mean, they're they're faking a a mental illness or a diagnosis. And so you do, you have to be able to document that because otherwise they could be labeled as something. And who knows? Worst case scenario, um, you know, get off in court from a serious crime because of it, Oof, yeah. which we'll kind of touch on as right. well as we go along here well, today. The other part of it that that I had spoken to you about earlier is that you know I have two two colleagues in the community. One is um, Christine Madrosian, who works over in the Pasadena area, and she's really an expert on working in DID, and she's somebody that I respect very highly. I've heard her speak on it. I've, uh, read things that she's written about it. I've actually consulted with her, um, on a couple of cases uh, a few years ago. She does trainings for professionals. Yeah. I mean, so she's somebody that really, she's got the receipts. Um, you know, she's done the background research and what I really respect about her also is that she goes out of the way to look at all the other, confounding factors and comorbidity. And when we say comorbidity, we're looking at um, examples where there's more than one diagnosis going on. There's more than one active thing in the person's um, constellation of behaviors and symptoms. So I really respect her. Now, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I've got a colleague uh, who just diagnoses everybody with DID. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> a yeah. pretty rare uh diagnosis. You're yeah. just gonna and, label and, you everyone. Know, yeah. And that's frustrating for me because that's ind- indicating to me that that's somebody who just chooses to look through a particular lens. Right. And you know, the old saying a broken clock is right twice a day. Sure. You know, you might get it right, you might not. Sure. But but one of the things that I think is fascinating about the controversy surrounding this diagnosis is what we call um uh, what is the term? Iatrogenic. Iatrogenic is a term that means did this syndrome, uh, this diagnosis, this set of symptoms, did it actually emerge as a result of someone's mistreatment? Not mist, uh, 
uh, medical treatment or psychological treatment. So, so essentially the therapist's fault. Yeah. Did the therapist cause it? Right. Yeah. So there seems to be a lot of controversy in this particular area, probably more so than in other areas of treatment for what we'd call access to stuff. Right. And we were just asked about it the other day. Right. And we were like, nope, doesn't really exist. Here's what it really is. And so that was kind of strange because we already talked about doing this episode. Right. I mean, but it's also, we have to be careful. Like it, it just, uh, what we're saying is it it doesn't exist in the way that the general population thinks it exists. Right. Um, even going back to when we were talking about in our episode about bad therapists, when we talked about Bruce Willis and the color of night, mm-hmm. was that it? And the sort of split personality of one of the clients, like, no, that that doesn't happen, right? So, tell me about the criteria. What's what's the well, the textbook learning about it? Generally, there's five core components to dissociation. So I'm just going to run through those, and we'll talk a little bit about actual diagnosis and the different ways it could be diagnosed. Um, But the first core component is going to be amnesia, so some sort of recurrent memory problem. A lot of people describe it as sort of losing time. Um, And they're basically gaps in your memory, and it can range from minutes to years for some people. See, that's one of the cases that I was going to bring up later that really, you know, on... On a level, if you want to dismiss it and think, well, this doesn't exist. This is just somebody who wanted to create it. They wanted to leave their old life and Mm -hmm. go away and start all over again. But then there are other cases of people that don't, they don't fit that at all. Like they really were in a fugue or how many people have disappeared as a result of this. That's fascinating. That is. I mean, we have so many missing people in this country and this world. I mean, it be interesting to know if we could just know how many were attributed to something like this. Wouldn't that be interesting if somebody did a cross section, if they had a list of like all these missing people of a certain age, Mm -hmm. and if we had any actual history on what was going on in their life before they disappeared, like if there was a history of trauma, if there was a history of recent stressors, right? if that was something that was a key factor. Yeah, I think that would still be difficult because then we could say, well, there are so many stressors. They're just trying to escape their life and they disappeared. (laughs) Damn you. Damn you and your intelligence. Devil's advocate. Dr. Shadow. Um, So we have amnesia. Another core component is depersonalization. So this is really like a sense of detachment or being disconnected from oneself. And I, I think I've had a number of clients sort of describe this in one way or another, you know, maybe it's more related to kind of an, an anxiety or panic disorder um, where they just sort of have this conscious out-of-body experience almost. Um, so derealization or depersonalization? No, or... this is – so those are two component, two separate components. Okay. This is depersonalization. Um, it can feel like being a stranger to yourself, feeling detached from your emotions, um, like you're on autopilot or kind of robotic almost. Um, well, which is interesting. That sounds like shock. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Where derealization, the third component, is a sense of disconnection from famil- familiar people, um, your surroundings, for example, like your relatives or your house, you know, things that should be familiar to you don't feel familiar to you. Okay. So that's interesting because immediately I want to go really far in that direction and think about Capgrass syndrome, which is where it's a, it's a really rare delusional disorder where you're convinced that 
all of the people that are familiar in your life have Uh been replaced. Oh my God. Yeah. It's very rare and totally frightening where you feel like your family has been replaced by people who are imposters. Oh, sounds like a twilight zone. Yeah. Um, Another component is identity confusion. So more of an inner struggle about one's sense of self or identity. Um, Just involves a lot of uncertainty, kind of conflict about your identity. And then there's identity alteration. So a sense of acting like a different person some of the time. Right. Um, So using different names in different situations or... You know, having a learned skill, which you don't have a recollection of learning. So this kind of starts to fit when I think of like the old split personality diagnosis and some of those presentations. I remember seeing this on like Oprah or something back in the day where they would have a person with multiple personality disorder that, well, this personality knows how to play the piano. Right. In fact, oh, we'll talk about her. I have I have her in my show notes. Um, okay. And she was one, and she was on Oprah, and had something like, and oh, by the way, the, the term that we use is alters. Yes. So they don't necessarily say identities. They say alters. And this woman had a, an enormous number of alters. Mm-hmm. And there are different things that have been recorded throughout history. And, you know, I use that that term loosely because, you know, without actual you know factual, rigorous study and recording of historical data, things get just misinterpreted so easily. But some of the more um, kind of florid examples of people who one altar can play the piano and the other altar can't, one altar can drive and the other one is paralyzed, Mm -hmm. you know, can't use their arms Mm -hmm. or, and I'm I'm not exaggerating either. I mean, this is, this is what's, you know, in the sort of anecdotal evidence. And the one that I had heard about and I've been searching and I can't find it, but if I can find it, we'll put it in the show notes is, um, a gentleman who was diagnosed with DID and one of his alters had diabetes and the other one didn't even to the extent that he would have severe, uh, symptoms of diabetes that could be, uh, verified by a medical professional. Now I need to find that, but I just remember a few years ago reading it, but, Hmm. but part of the time he wouldn't have those symptoms. Right. So one day you're eating cake and you're fine. The other day you're eating cake and your foot falls off. <laughs> it could happen, I guess. It could. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. But uh, so, in this sort of umbrella of dissociative diagnoses, there's a couple different ones, as there always is in the DSM. Um, so, we do have DID, which is dissociative identity disorder. And basically, that's described in the DSM as a disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states which may be described in some cultures as an experience of possession. Right. Linking back to... Yeah. Going back I'm, to our exercise. Yeah, I have kind of some bells and whistles going off and relating to just, you know, how much people are feigning this or what's really going on. Um, but I know we talked about DID as a possible diagnosis for the classic case that inspired the exorcist. So bringing it back, but um, really the disruption of sense of self, sense of agency, 
accompanied by related alterations and affect, which we've talked about before on here, how you sort of present. Um, how your emotions are read right. by others or how they present. Your behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and other sensory motory functioning. Um, the DSM also says that these signs and symptoms may be observed by others or just reported reported by the individual. So, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating, if you look, I, you know, the DSM does a great umbrella and they, you know, laser focus in on some. They don't obviously is not they're not set up to necessarily give examples. But I always love going to Great Britain and um, also Australia you know, there's a lot of psych research that's really, really rigorous that's being done in Australia and the UK. And one of the things that they talk about um, regarding DID is they always really want to center it, that if it exists, that that really the um, precipitating phenomenon is childhood trauma. Right. And most and the, and the majority of the time it's sexual trauma. Correct. Which is just horrifying to think of. Um, and then plays later into how the story of... Um, Sybil was told, which we'll get into later. But the the theory behind it is that the child has this fragile psyche that dissociates in order to cope with the stressors and the pain, which really are way out of the the purview, the ability of a child of that developmental period to be able to deal with. Right, because we all have defense mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves and our brains so we don't go crazy. I eat. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that's not an exercise. That's not really a, that's a coping defense skill. mechanism, but I'm talking about something more psychological, but the, a child doesn't necessarily have those skills yet right. in the development right. of where they are, where their brain is. Um, it's literally an, a, a mental escape of what is physically going on around right. them, a, a checking out to the nth degree. So, um, aside from DID, there's also dissociative amnesia, including dissociative fugue. Um, this is the most common dissociative disorder, um, several types of amnesia and, and there's many different causes, but we're talking about amnesia, not caused by head injuries or some sort of accident that you can, uh, sort of link this to. It's part of their mental health condition. So it could stem from PTSD or another acute distress disorder or several other types of anxiety disorders. So this is this does not have a link to a, a physical injury. Right. And, which is another example of why it gets so tough for mental health professionals who are being you know, really responsible with their diagnostic, uh, diagnostic process. It's, it's just hard to swallow regarding the causality, um, and how it pertains to repressed memories. And, you know, some, a lot of, I mean, especially in the last 20 years after the satanic panic of the eighties, oh, that's 30 years. Um, you know, we're a lot more careful about making broad statements Mm -hmm. about how that's going to express in certain people, because not everybody's going to react that way. Yeah. Um, I I think, that's what really draws me to this work is that sort of investigative piece where you really have to tease a lot of other things out. Yeah. You know, you have these these symptoms and this presentation in front of you and could it be from a head injury? Could it be from drug use? You know, there's all these sort of things that you have to try and get information on to inform your decision of making a diagnosis. 
And I kind of start with those peripheral things. And once I can roll them out, it's like, okay, let's look at the psychological piece. So just to build on that, when I sent you a link, I mean, I sent you a link earlier today in preparation for this. And I, 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 in the tagline, I wrote the stupid, it burns. And it was somebody on YouTube that, well, it was two people on YouTube. You went on a YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah. And I, this one really, these are, one of them is a, you know, is supposedly a medical professional and was talking, was giving some examples um, that really, I just thought, you know, we have to be really careful. I mean, I'll, certainly I'll toss out things about uh, people in the public, but I, I try and be careful about it. And this guy was particularly, this psychiatrist was talking about Britney Spears um, and how his observation of interviews and her, I think she had, a, she had that very short-term or short-lived uh, reality show. And it just seemed like he was making a lot of suppositions. Yes. You know, that could really all be explained um, and I'm not, you know, there are things that have been tossed around, I, you know, about what her diagnosis is. What I would say is that what I've observed is more likely to be hypomania or manic stages of bipolar disorder. But the thing is, we you don't know, know right? We don't like, know. She's never sat in front of us. We cannot go through all this collateral information and history and make a judgment like right. that. Right. So to pick out one thing, one piece of behavior and then build on it is just exactly right. what we really have to be careful about doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you have to be very careful. Right. And I, I think that's, that really adds to what the point we want to make here is that there are a lot of other things that can be happening diagnostically in regard to a mood disorder, such as bipolar disorder, one or two, um, a de- severe depressive state, severe like major depressive disorder can cause fugue states as well. The sure. brain just is, it's like the brain is constantly trying to reboot and can't, can't get going that can cause fugue, fugue states. Mm-hmm. And then also borderline personality disorder, which is, tends to be attention seeking and we'll build on that later. So there's a lot of different things that can there be going is. on. This job is hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it should be. Yeah, It, it absolutely it should, should be. be. And it, it should take a lot of time and effort to diagnose someone because that's something that follows them for the rest of their life. Absolutely. And if you're just going around slapping disorders on people, it's horrific. Um, and lastly, so depersonalization and derealization is its own disorder. So again, people kind of explain having feelings like I am no one. I have no sense of self. My head feels as feels as if it's filled with cotton. Um, I feel like a robot, like I'm on automatic pilot, like we talked about before. Um, I'm just thinking right now that I, I had a client one time that was trying to explain these episodes to me. And he would say, I just feel like a computer that's just about to turn off. Oh, boy, that's, that's a it, very powerful image. It was so powerful, and I'm I'm trying to get him to explain a little bit more. Of course, I go to sort of the physicality of it, and there wasn't a whole lot of physical symptoms, but he said, I just I said, do you feel like you're going to die? And he's like, no, I just feel like I'm about to lose power, you know, just power off and or power down. And it was just such an interesting description. But I feel like depersonalization and some of these disassociative, dissociative disorders um, are just really hard to explain. Yeah. And how tortured that must, you know, these are diagnosable sort of criteria that we're going through sort of the, um, the worst of the worst. Right. But just dissociation is something that 
a lot of people experience, probably the majority of people, on an occasional basis. I mean... Elements of it, right? Yeah. I mean, do you kind of get lost in a book reading it and then can't remember what you just read? Or drive? Uh, the driving thing is, the, is a big how one. The how the heck did I get here? Yeah. I remember <laughs> commuting. Terrifying. I remember when I was working at the prisons and I was commuting a, many hundreds of miles each week. And... There would be, and there's in, here in California, there are long stretches of very sort of nondescriptive blank highway. And I would be listening to music or I'd be lost in thoughts. It'd be early in the morning or it'd be late at night. And suddenly, wait, where did that hour go? Wait, right. how did I, how did I get to this exit? That, yeah. No memory. Right. Right. So that, I mean, that's an experience of detachment, of disconnection, of dissociation. It really is. So we we all do this from time to time, um, but we usually describe it as, oh, I'm just on autopilot. You know, how many hundreds of times did you drive that road? Right. You could do it on autopilot. It was fine. But it's just, it, it's a little taste, maybe, right. of, right. you know, sort of these more um, serious disorders that we're talking about, but not that uncomfortable. Maybe... Um, Distressful when you realize yeah. what the heck. Um, I, I was going to talk about related to PTSD, but really we sort of focused on that already. Just sort of the the trauma aspect, I guess, in childhood. But you can also experience a trauma as an adult and have some serious stress disorders as a result of that. Um, that can some, look that can look different yeah, in everyone. Yeah, it, it can, and and some of the the hallmarks with that is that you just you're re-experiencing the event, um, in an uncontrolled manner. You know, it's coming up, and you don't want to think about it or re-experience it, and maybe to dissociate a little bit is essentially a coping mechanism with more complex PTSD, which is very far. I mean, it's, and it is interesting because we started out talking about this being an umbrella term, which is covering a lot of territory because what you're speaking of definitely doesn't go to what people's general misunderstanding of the diagnosis of that. There are different identities inside you. That's, that's sort of the, really the belief that persists about DID, that there's someone different or different people into these, um, identities inside you and this only adds to the confusion about the disorder Mm -hmm. and sort of looking at people as if they're you know bizarre when that may be a stress-related disorder um and now and also what's making it worse is that unless you're somebody like my you know esteemed colleague uh christine who really follows a rigorous standardized protocol for her treatment as opposed to a lot of people out there that just you know, just try anything oh, that they geez. want to try, yeah. which then can make the situation worse, um, which we're going to give a very solid example of yeah, in a bit. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, I with the, the trauma, you know, the piece of that that sort of hits home with me being in law enforcement and having several critical and traumatic incidents, as well as now working with officers in that aspect, um, a lot of my work is debriefing incidents with officers, but it's just the varied reaction that people respond to trauma. And it's so interesting because, you know, we always say there is no right or wrong way to react to it, but it is so varied, you know, that an officer can go through a shooting 
and everything is hyper-focused. You oh, remember yeah. absolute details of everything. Or there can be an officer that can't even remember that they fired their weapon. Like, no, I, I don't think I fired. Oh, there's rounds missing. And it's just, it happens so fast. And when your life's at stake, there are pieces of your memory that can completely be gone. I mean, I, I remember from one of my shootings doing the walkthrough afterwards with the the investigators that are doing the shooting and asking, oh, did you ever go and seek cover, you know, here behind this vehicle? No, I don't think so. I don't think I did. And then they go, well, you were with your partner who got shot and the blood trail leads here. I'm like, oh, I don't even remember that piece of our our journey that night. How long into your law enforcement career were you when that happened? Um, that shooting was four years into my career. My first shooting was my last night of training. I was a brand new rookie. Oh, damn. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I had two and one was pretty, was about six months after I started. And the second one was about four years after. Jeez. But yeah, I had had no idea idea that it happened. Nope. But there was the literal blood trail from, you know, his injury. Well, okay. So did... Physical evidence. So after you're challenged by that reality, did anything come back? Nope. Nope. Wow. No, I just sort of trusted in the physical evidence that, yeah. you know, we, we were together. The blood trail showed that we had gone there for a period of time before we then sort of got out of the um, the the scene where we were at, found better cover, I guess, um, and got him out to find him to get him medical treatment, of course. But no, I just, I sort of trusted in it. The memory didn't necessarily come back. Um, so uh, firsthand, I realized, yeah, you can be in a situation like that. And it's really tough when an investigator is going, really? Like, you don't remember that? And no, I don't. And so as, as psychologists working with law enforcement officers, we try to very much educate yeah, these investigators so. of no, the officer's not lying about not remembering shooting. Your memory can fail you at these times, and definitely that Which can would, be a... Which it would also be the lamest lie ever, right? Because oh, there's physical evidence. Right. The rounds are missing, right. right? Right. That's so fascinating. So it's, it's so interesting how people react to trauma, um, even just sort of you know, temporarily, and it's not indicative of a bigger problem. podcast to fill your deadly desires i'm mackenzie and i'm olivia the host of death by champagne the podcast here to keep you up at night each week we have a booze-fueled conversation about scary murders haunted houses cold cases tales of the occult and anything else that's spooky and deadly find death by champagne on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to hear about stories like the demise of the lemp family an insane episode on kidnappings the beckford hauntings an episode dedicated to crimes in australia and others like ouija boards vampires and cold cases from the midwest we release new episodes every friday so tune in get your sage ready bring your cat keychain surround yourself in a salt circle and camp out under the covers see you then
Yeah. So the first example of uh, how this is portrayed in the media that I want to use uh, is not the oldest one by any means. It's only a year old. It's a great show called The Center that was based on a German crime novel by Petra Hamasfar. Hamasfar? Mm, okay. I, that's I'll as good it. as I do with my Teutonic background. Uh, so it was only uh, eight episodes on the USA Network back in 2017. Uh, I think... I marathoned probably the first six because I caught it late. And I mean, I could not put it down when I saw it. Jessica Biel plays uh, a young woman that we see from the age of probably 16 to about 23. Uh, She's a great actress. One of the things I really like about her is that her sort of detached coolness was perfect for this role not that she's cool but the detachment was really great so because she's so gorgeous to look at yeah she's really beautiful and there is a way in which you kind of put that aside and you're really just connected with her lack of emotionality in all of this i mean even in before sort of the incident that sparks all of this she's just sort of this melancholy young wife you know mother to a little toddler which is they they you know okay so let's her name is cora cora yeah Cora. okay so cora is in her early 20s she's married to you know a blue collar worker a guy that owns his family owns a guy on it's been so long and i remember what business like yeah that was it so they're uh they have a, a toddler and you know, what seems like to be a, a happy relationship. Right. You know, it's just like you see this slice of life at the beginning of the show and everything is building up in the first episode to them going to a uh, a local lake beach. Right. So they go to the beach. Um, her husband is watching their toddler. She goes for a swim. And that's the first clue you get that something is off with Cora. Right. In that she swims way outside the parameters of the swimming area. She goes to a very deep part of the lake. And she swims really deep down. You can tell right. this is a very, very deep lake. And she's, not only does she swim down, but she holds her breath and holds her breath. To the point where her husband notices that she's gone mm-hmm. and starts to panic. A little he bit. starts to panic a little bit. He's not seeing her anywhere in the water. And then she surfaces and the look on her face yeah. is just this intense blankness. Right. That's a great way to put it. And that, that yeah, that's the first thing that you're like, what is okay, going on yeah. here? Because everything up to this sounded so, felt so normal, right? right? So she swims back and you're thinking, and I, I was not prepared Me either. I thought, okay, that's all. a little taste. We'll get into it in the next episode. Right. It's going to be a couple of episodes But down. oh no. <laughs> so she's laying on the beach with her family and there's a obnoxious couple, a couple of uh, towels down in their 20s and they are... Um, making out, it's the kind of couple you're like, oh God, get a room. Right. You just want them to go away. Kind of playful. Kind of playful, but a little bit much. aggressive. Like what they, sure. like there's a couple of times where they're, they really are wrestling mm-hmm. and the guy flips the young woman a couple of times and right. they're laughing. She's laughing the right. whole time. They got this obnoxious music playing. and But significant because sure. it's a, it's a song and you just, they keep cutting back to Cora's face and you see something's happening. Mm-hmm. Like she... There's just, she's going blank. 
she's like she's turning off and on and off and on. Right. And then she sees him flip her. Right. Like uh, kind of and, and be on top of her. And all while this is going on, she's peeling an apple with a small paring knife, which who does that? But that was a great <laughs> okay. moment for the beach, whatever. So she's sitting there pairing and then the combination is building up of the actions, the making out, the pseudo violence right. and the music that's playing. And she stands up completely blank faced, walks over to the guy, grabs him around the neck and stabs him repeatedly, very quickly, probably nine times. Right. Then, meanwhile, yelling, get off her, get yeah, off her. Yeah, get off her, get off her. And then he flips over and looks at her. And right as he dies, you realize he recognizes her. Like yeah. they, the, that was directed beautifully, by yes. the way. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah. And so then the rest of the show is. There's episode number there's episode one. one. You're just kind of left like, what is going on? Um, but I, I think it gives you this idea of, wow, she just. Did she take out this innocent guy? Did you, what sort of trauma does she have with him? What's the connection or is it something else? Yeah. Um, because throughout the, the season, we actually see her much younger as a child when it flips back to her family um, and her, her upbringing in a very, very religious. <laughs> yeah. Um, and done well. I, I would even say traumatic you know, in a lot of ways, there's some physical punishment weaved in with the religion um, that is just kind of brutal to watch. Kneeling down on rice, yeah, that was to brutal. pray. It, uh, I thought what was interesting is you know we got a you know uh, <clears throat> one of the classics of sort of uh, overbearing religiosity and uh, abuse of a child is portrayed by Piper Laurie in the movie Carrie. Right. And it's a bit over the top. I think even Piper Laurie says in a couple of interviews that she actually thought when she got the script that the movie was a comedy because she couldn't believe that it was written to be that over the top. So she plays it quite melodramatically, but it's frightening in a horror movie. It's even more disturbing in this movie because you get the conviction that this mom is messed up and the dad is completely, he's checked out. Mm -hmm. He's like this milk toast nice guy that doesn't take up for his daughters. The Cora has a sister who is disabled, which from a psych perspective is really significant when there's a sibling in the house that has chronic disease. That is tough enough on the sibling. What makes it even worse is the mother is terrible. This is all your fault. We're not praying hard enough. So she's not getting better. You're not praying hard enough. You're not being good, which is why she's being punished. You took all the, the life out of my body. I was not able to give it to her. You're the reason that she's broken. Horrible, horrible, just horrible. So we've got definitely a lot of factors that would lead up to trauma. And what happens in this throughout this is that after this crime until even through her evaluation, she has no understanding for why she did it. Right. She She's knows in, she did it. She knows. She remembers. She confesses. Yeah. But she has no idea what the, the reasoning is. And, of course, there's a really interesting cop character played by Paul, Bill Pullman. He's so who, great. He is... He's... He knows that something's up. Yeah. He believes that she's not lying, that she doesn't remember this. 
But, you know, they then the story unfolds with a couple of interesting things because you were talking about they do a full on. They do a, a, a what they said was a competency eval um, because essentially she pleads guilty right away and says, and competency yeah, I'm guilty, means I did it. And just for to make sure everybody understands <laughs> is competency is a process where you have to make sure that the accused understands what they are being charged with and understands the process of the court. Are they competent to stand trial? Do they have an understanding of the process? Yeah. So I I think it's important to clarify because a lot of people, you know, think is this to test their sanity? Is this to test if they're sane now or at the time of the crime? That's really not the issue Um, to see if someone is fit to stand trial, to see if they're fit to stand trial. Can they understand who the players are in the courtroom? Can they be of help to their legal defense? Do they just understand what's going on in the most basic way? So it really doesn't have much to do with were they crazy at the time right. that they did this? So or... they're kind of in the in this for the they're taking literary license and kind of lumping them together a, a bit. little bit. But I, you know, they even show the sort of multiple evaluations that she goes through with some of the social work or not social workers, whatever mental health professionals they used, and then the detective goes in and tries to talk to them about that, which. There's some confidentiality stuff. Yeah, I'm exactly. Like, eh, nope, yeah. doesn't work like that. Um, but yeah, Harry is the uh, he's the detective, the character name. Um, but yeah, he definitely knows. Like, no, there's something else here. But then she does tell some lies about some things, and so it, it it's very muddy. It is muddy, but I did not like as, as a character. She had, I understood why she was lying because she had, oh, the other part that we're talking, that we didn't talk about is that she completely leaves her family to start a new life. Her family don't don't even know that she's one city over. Right, right married to this guy with a child because she wants nothing to do with them. And then there's an unfolding in the story later that we find out that there was a, a really tragic event um, around her sister and the one time that they actually kind of are able to get away from their mother's influence. Right. And right. that turns into um, and it, uh, what we would call the precipitating event, the trauma that would be based on uh, – the trauma of their childhood growing up mm-hmm. in this religious household. But you brought up something the the confounding factor in this is that it's not just trauma that is sort of put out as the reason for these, this dissociative fugue and amnesia right. that she has. So we're, we're sort of led to believe that, but then it turns out that because the boy that ends up killing accidentally her sister. Her, her sister ends up dying due to probably heart failure while she's having sex with this guy. Um, and then has a heart attack. The guy tries to give her CPR, not knowing right. that she has fragile bones, and he basically just cracks her sternum. Yeah, it's and, like, and Cora's, like, you know, drugged out, and she thinks this guy's killing her sister, and so that's the traumatic factor. But the fact is... This boy has a father who's a doctor, and they don't want Cora to talk about what happened. So they essentially keep her locked up and just drug her. Over a period of like a couple of, I think a couple couple of months. Or maybe months, um, and then just dump her somewhere. So she has this lost period of time, which she genuinely can't remember. Um, But it's 
not necessarily due to the trauma. It's due to the fact that she was just medicated over and over again. Which they could have just, if they had dosed her up with something like Rohypnol mm-hmm. or any uh, any of the anesthetics, right. she would not have had time to encode that in her long-term memory. Right. So they don't want to so kill her, but they, they just want, right. sort of wiped her memory in this horrific way. Um, so you're sort of led to believe that this is a dissociative issue. Um, but I, I don't think it really fits for me, even though it totally could have with the amount of trauma and the childhood abuse that was going on. Um, but still just, it, it was just a great season. Um, I didn't get into season two. I tried watching it, but, um, this was just a great depiction and I, I loved Bill Pullman's character and it was... I don't know. Any well, other sort of yeah, overall he's, thoughts? Well, you love that because he's like really dark and has a, <laughs> well, yeah. like his, his kink is really dangerous. So yeah, true. But it was good. Do they, do good. we know if they, they continue that in the second season? Um, it was a whole, like he's still the detective, but it's a whole different case that he's investigating. But is he still seeing the, the, oh, the oh, waitress oh. or um, the, the woman that he engages in his kink with? I didn't watch far enough in okay. to see her if she's in the second season, but I thought she was great. I loved her character. She's a great actress. Yeah. I mean, that was a really great character. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one example that I thought was really well done, even though they weren't necessarily going for presenting it as a split personality or even DID proper, but the idea of an amnesiac fugue Mm -hmm. I thought was kind of portrayed in a realistic way there as well. And one of the things that's, that's vital about the story that is if you haven't watched it, it sounds sort of uh, the way I'm talking about it. It sounds like, Oh, well that's a bit, you know, um, lifetime movie. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, but it's really not because there's a, they get into factors of socioeconomic status and how this clubhouse, this country clubhouse is where all the rich kid sons, the frat boys right. were breaking in and having these, you know, drug fueled sex parties. And then the idea that they had enough money and power to cover this up, including another dead body yeah. that was left yeah. in the woods, um, that Cora knew about. Right. So, uh, anyway, overall I yeah. thought it was really cool it and definitely good. worth watching. Um, so moving on to another fictional example that we won't spend a lot of time on, but we're going to say something that really confounded and kind of complicated and yet fascinated and drove research in this area was the movie Sybil. So Sybil was a made for TV movie event. I think it was broadcast over two nights. It was based on a novel that was written by a therapist uh, regarding one of her clients who had a number of alters or different identities. It was played by Sally Field beautifully, really, really kind of a breakout performance for her because she had been a child and teen star. Right. And there was a period after she kind of aged out of her her teen years where she really wasn't working. And this really put her back in the spotlight um, and led to other aspects of her career. But she really does a great job. Unfortunately, is all based on most likely diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And in order to continue getting the attention from her borderline object, which was her therapist, she played into the therapist's ideas of 
multiple personality disorder. And the therapist was really kind of not being particularly ethical or professional in her own right by checking herself. And almost suggesting right. these types of symptomology. Right. But I remember being a kid when the book came out, like everybody had it, like everybody had it or you were borrowing it and we were all talking about it and like, oh, and she's got male identities. And one of them, she woke up out of a fugue and and Ted had built an entire bookshelf and a wall, a room divider. And one, uh, one altar took over during abuse and uh, she she learned French, but Sybil woke up four years later and didn't know how to read, and she was already in the seventh grade. You know, so all this right. kind of stuff that was really kind of fascinating, mm-hmm. but now we know is most likely not true. And that was also one of the first times it was ever really portrayed that I know of in media and certainly on television, really horrific uh, child abuse. I mean, oh really? The okay. way her mom treated her and tortured her was like horrific um, sexual and physical abuse as well as uh, just, uh, I mean, I remember we even kind of laughed about it because it would be over the, I mean, it's so over the top. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. you laugh about that, especially as a kid, you laugh about it because it doesn't, as an adult, yeah, as as a, as an adult, you'd look back on it and be really horrified. Yeah. Um, just like but, I laughed right now, even just reinforcing. Yeah, I mean, well, I was thinking there's a thing like there was one time that supposedly like one of the key scenes is that um, as she's trying to reintegrate all these these uh, uh, altars and she's realizing that there when she gets very upset, one very primitive altar would come forward and just would repeat the purple crayon, the purple crayon, the purple crayon, the purple crayon, the purple crayon. And they could never figure out what the purple crayon was until they go back and they find that inside this locked box inside a closet she would scribble with a purple crayon and you know her mm-hmm. mother would torture her with certain items around yeah. the house and like locker and different places pretty horrific but you know really sad that we now find out that you know it was all kind of sure. bullshit um there was an earlier movie with um Joanne Woodward, interestingly enough, Joanne Woodward plays the therapist. I was going to say, she's Sybil, in the 76 version. She was in a famous movie called uh, uh, Three Faces of Eve. Oh, right. Uh, playing Eve White, Eve Black, and Jane were the three altars. And that actually probably has more possibility of being true. But um, I, And it's even said that that case she had more, uh, she actually had more altars, but they just kind of boiled it down into that. Uh, into those three. Um, wow, that one was from 1957. Yeah, 1957, which was probably one of the first times that it was ever portrayed. Well, certainly by a woman. Right. Um, or in a woman's case. Uh-huh. So Oprah had a guest on that you can watch on YouTube, and that's a very interesting one. Um, and she seems very genuine and interesting how she talks about her process of uh, through years and years of intense therapy, reintegrating her altars. Um, and she gives some really kind of great visuals about how it, it feels, you know, when she would be in a state and she sort of would be having this internal view of all of the altars sort of facing each other in a circle. And as they would merge, they would start to hold hands and become you know, I don't know. It's very interesting the way right. it was per- sort of the symbolic um, merging, yeah. merging, and so 
did that seem to be like the goal of therapy and treating individuals? Yeah, because it goes along. See if we can merge them and get the numbers smaller and smaller. Right, because when we talk about in doing clinical work, when we talk about especially with anxiety disorders, anxiety disorders have this tendency to fragment people's. I don't want to say personalities, fragment aspects of their psyche, Mm -hmm. you know, and not that uh, the idea of even sort of who you are throughout your day. Who am I when I'm sitting across from microphone from you? Right. Who am I when I'm talking to my boss? Who am I when I'm talking to a supervisee? And we all have all these different aspects. That's weird because I'm the same to everybody. You you absolutely are. (laughs) Because Definitely you, not. Because you are blissfully unburdened by the need to please people like we I am. We are both Gemini, <laughs> exactly. so that is absolutely not we, true. We contain multitudes. Yes. But, yeah, the idea of, you know, we have the idea of the fractured or the fragmented self, and then the idea of the sort of the overview of what I've seen of the different techniques towards uh, working with DID is to reintegrate or I guess to use a, a modern computer term to defrag, right? You know, to get everything back. That's so interesting. A... I mean, I just think <laughs> just address the trauma, like just right. You know, like come on, right? I, I get it. It's, it's sort it's of like addressing the symptom instead of going to yes. the trauma. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No I wonder it was such a shit show for a long time. Oh yeah, this <laughs> people not knowing what they're doing, and also that sort of, and also let me let me say this too, and I would want to. We've touched on this before in other episodes, but the idea that in media, how we portray childhood trauma, almost the majority of the time, always they blame the mom, you know, and it's easy to blame the mom because the mom is the easiest target and generally has the most influence in the early developmental years of a child's life. But let me tell you, it's just not fair. You know, we right. even had, I think we've talked about this too. We had a theory in psychology that thankfully is no longer taught except in as a warning. If we had this idea of the schizophrenogenic mother, so that the, the sort of the insanity of the maternal uh, force would be then transported not transported, translated into the behaviors and the experience of the child. And that's not true. It's not fair. And it's a, I think it's another expression of internalized and explicit misogyny we have in our society. Yeah. But entertainment loves that oh, yeah. storyline. And... Absolutely. It's an easy target, yeah. right? So I would like to start talking about the keepers. Oh, God. Let's get into the keepers. Yeah, I'm going to have to prepare myself for yeah. this one, man. <laughs> we won't get too much in depth because they're just going back and watching it the horrific abuse from these people in power is just disgusting. And I want to talk a little bit about power bases as well as we go through this, but can I just say one thing? Yeah. I'm so, okay. I have no idea what it was about. Like I had seen spotlight, which is about, uh, church right. abuse in, right. in Boston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, or was it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was Boston. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Everybody was, was saying you got to watch the keepers. You got to watch keepers. I had no idea. I, mean, I knew it was going to be bad, but I did not know that it was going to take two right turns into absolute horror, and that it's true. Right. That it's all like this is not a narrative device. No. This is all and and part of the horror is the apathy 
by the people in power, particularly one person. Oh, I'll let you get on that soapbox. But I'm getting so back get to there. you. Go ahead. Um, so this takes place in Baltimore. Baltimore, right. Which is such an interesting backdrop for this story because the first Catholic diocese in the United States was in Baltimore. So if we're talking about deep Catholic roots and nobody wanting to go up against the church, I mean, this really hits home in this area. But this is the late 60s, um, and essentially the first episode opens up with the death of this nun that taught at an all-girls Catholic school, Sister Kathy. And so that's what you kind of think. Okay, this is going to be a murder mystery. Right. About this nun who killed her. <laughs> who right? killed, like that's, and that is the title. Yeah, who, who killed, killed Sister Kathy. Um, but it's not, so she goes missing two months later. Her body is found and there's blunt force trauma to the back of her head. Um, and it, it's even more of a twist in the first episode because two weeks later, another young woman goes missing who's not affiliated with the church or anything, but sort of same MO. Um, and her body is found pretty quickly a couple days later. But there's this idea of who's in our town, who's in our city, um, where these young women and it's have a been out. It, right, one of them's a nun. A nun. Who oh kills a nun? Right, right. Exactly. So we get introduced pretty quickly to these two women who are former students of Sister Kathy, and they've been investigating this just, you know, from their little desks and their houses in the evening when they're done at the end of the day, um, as well as an investigative journalist that had written about the case. Um, but they they want to get to the bottom of who killed Sister Kathy because she was everything to them. She was just such a bright spot um, in their education, and she was young herself, so they really connected with her. And beautiful. Like, oh, yeah. just somebody, sort of this, and every description of her is just glowing how much of an advocate she was for the young women and how much of a mentor right. she was to all of them. And progressive and yeah. hip, and just they, they really connected with her. Um, and so it, it does sort of start out as this murder mystery. And then at the end of season one, we get introduced sort of to this this character known as Jane Doe, who says, you know, do they just have her voice sort of at the end of the episode saying that Sister Kathy was killed because she was going to talk about what was going on in the school. And they used her death to keep me quiet. And then you're like, what? I know, that's, yeah, that was the first right turn. You're like, wait. What? Um, so... In episode two, we get introduced to Jean. So Jean is is Jane Doe, and you know where we start to see this overlap of trauma, horrific, longstanding abuse, um, as well as dissociation. Um, when, like we were describing before, a still developing brain just can only take so much, um, whether it's abuse happening to them or something that they're seeing in front of them. So, again, it, we it, there's a lot of backdrop in this episode of just kind of what life was like in the 50s and 60s and the big Catholic families and, you know, just being so important and everyone going to church and everyone being dressed up and, I mean, big Catholic families, you know, nine kids and um, the, the deep roots of the Catholic church in Baltimore. So, which means 
the power of the church and the the power that the individuals of high standing in the church right. had, including the schools, the parochial Correct. schools. Correct. So that that's a good lead in to talk about this concept of power base. And I think this really got drilled down for me when you and I started working with sex offenders because of a lot of sex crimes being all about power and control. Um, but essentially a power base is whatever makes someone have more power and control over the other person because of a, a variety of a bunch of different factors. So it could be their size. If this person is bigger than me, automatically, you know, there's this idea that they have more control or power over me. Um, it could be that you're a male and I'm a female. So sort of strength, size, um, perceived standing, perceived power. Right, right. Um, it could be a weapon. So if someone has a weapon, they automatically have more power in the situation. Um, the element of surprise can also be a power base in and of itself. So if you if you want to compare two situations, if we're talking about sex crimes, you think of like, okay, date rape, right? So date rape, usually someone you know, usually someone you trust, um, you're with that person willingly, you know, going out on a date with them. There's not a whole lot of those, those power bases that I just talked about present. But if you're walking down the street and a guy jumps out from behind the bushes with a gun in his hand, you got the element of surprise, you got a weapon involved, you, the fact that you weren't even thinking about coming into contact with something or with someone, automatically you're off kilter. You're more likely to be um, victimized. Right. Um, but there's also the idea of authority being a power base as well. And that can have to do with the role that that person has over the other person. It could be the the patriarch of the family. Um, it could be a boss. It could be someone in authority, like a police officer, a priest. A spiritual leader that then also has additional weapons, which is 2,000 years worth, worth of patriarchy. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit powerful. Um, but just the fact that their role um, is one of authority and one of trust. And how are you going to battle against that? Or how are you going to come out to people and say that that person did something bad to me? Well, and also in this case, so you've also set up the, uh, the idea that someone would have the wherewithal to do that. And the way that these horrific abuses happen in the keepers is that this priest, the two priests actually used emotional and spiritual manipulation to convince these girls that they were unworthy of anything, right. barely even worthy of any attention and, you know, imperfect and soiled in the eyes of God. And the only way for them to redeem themselves were mm -hmm. by participating in these absolute heinous acts. Yeah. And I think it goes to, you know, when people always say, well, why did this victim wait so long to come forward? Oh. I always try and bring people back to power base. Um, and I think celebrity is power base. I, Bill Cosby case is just a perfect example right. of this. Who is going to believe me Right. that this person that is America's father um, and beloved comedian did something horrific like this to me? So 
that's why people wait years to come forward until they finally find the strength to do so. And also in numbers, which is also what happened in, in this issue with, with the keepers. Um, so Jean, this Jane Doe, she starts talking about how she was abused by a family member when she was young. And she goes to confession one day and wants to talk about this in the sense that she feels guilty. She's no longer being abused. She It sounds like she aged out of her abuser's preferred age range. But she still is harboring this guilt about it and never told anyone about it, doesn't know what's going on, um, and goes into confession and starts talking about it to Father Maskell. And essentially he says, I need that... I don't know if I can forgive you right now or God can forgive you right now, but let's let's continue this later. And so Father Maskell was the the counselor of this all-girls <sighs> school. So he was trained um, in psychology and had some degrees, and he was the counselor. As you were talking about earlier, just the weaving of spirituality and religion into it, like making the sign of the cross with his penis on her stomach or calling his, his, his tongue, semen, the Holy spirit, the Holy spirit, you know, sw- to, to take in to swallow the, the Holy spirit. Right. Yeah. It's and, disgusting. You know, at, at some point there's another priest that is from the school that joins in on this. Um, at another point he brings out a gun and puts it to her head and threatens her. Oh, let me add, her father was a police officer. Right. So he tells her, This your dad will kill you if you ever tell about this because of what you know, essentially what a whore you are. So going back to what you were just talking about, these these bastions of power, not only is it happening in the church, yeah. using the tool of the spirituality, the religiosity, the shame, it's also putting another foundation in there of Another brotherhood of policemen right. in that blue line. Right. And also, you know, like th- even though she's threatening, she's being threatened with her dad killing her, it's also danger to him, danger mm-hmm. to the rest of the family. Mm-hmm. And a literal brotherhood because Father Maskell's brother was a police officer in Baltimore. So, I mean, that's a whole nother thread. He was also a reserve police officer, right? Right. That's right. Or he was the chaplain for the police department. Oh, God. Just Even worse. <laughs> so incestuous. Um, but there's one time where in, in all these sessions, he's saying, well, maybe this time it'll work. You know, it'll it'll wash away your sins. And essentially that was sort of the goal. And so she's thinking, OK, I'm going to do this again. Maybe it'll work. Um, but one of these sessions, she opens up her eyes and there's a uniformed police officer in the room. And Father Maskell is having her do things to this police officer. So, I mean, God, talk about, you know, cultish. It just, it feels so much like a, a sex abuse cult also, you know, bringing these other people in and the torture. Well, and the it kind of is. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it's, there's this first sort of flavor that I got of dissociation when she says she walks out of his office and she said, I would hear the click of the door. And it's like, I forgot everything happened. So there's this early, okay, I'm going to pull myself together, forget everything that happened and go on about my day at school. Um, Once again, going back to shock. 
right you know shock and then compartmentalization all these sort of one by one these little factors that would yeah. add to dissociation yeah and and she would say you know he wouldn't give me a towel to clean up with nothing it was get yourself together and get back to class so you know whether it was conscious or subconscious of the sort of dissociating i got to go back to class um I don't know, but it, it felt like kind of the start of, of something for her and the way her brain was coping with all of this. They have all, a wonderful psychiatrist who is in, I believe, episode six. I took, in fact, I, I took down, of course, I didn't bring it, but he goes into the neurochemical processes involved in trauma and really just spells it out. Like, no, we, we have science behind this, mm-hmm. that there is trauma creates a neuro cascade of these chemicals that create blockages and would, would absolutely support, yeah. you know, this, this trauma. What freaks me out as this story develops, or one of the things that freaks me out is how many young women were being abused? It wasn't just these two. It oh, was no. dozens. It was dozens right. of women. And even we find later a young man at another school before the guy had been yeah. uh, transferred. But that the women that were not being abused were clueless, had no idea what was going on. The ones that were, were so traumatized and horrified that they knew what was happening when when one would be called over the loudspeaker. It, and even uh, some yeah. of the nuns knew. I have chills right now thinking about like this silent connection where the one of them says. Knowing that you have no power. Right. I have to go to this. I, I hear my name being called over the intercom and a dozen other girls in my class are looking at me with sad eyes because <sighs> they know what's about to happen. And yeah, talk of... Even teachers saying, I know he's weird, but you have to go down there. You know, maybe not knowing the extent of what's going on, uh, but I, just, I, I know. I have a hard time with so that. So it, it, at some point, she can't hold it together, and she, she ends up going back into a classroom, and Sister Kathy starts asking her, and so smartly, you know, asks, how's your experience here at the school? And she just says, I don't really like it. I'm thinking about transferring. And Sister Kathy starts asking her questions that she doesn't want to answer. But she says, why don't you just nod for me? Is Father so-and-so doing things to you that you don't like? And she she can muster together to shake her head in the affirmative. And so this is kind of when, guess what, Sister Kathy goes missing. Is a little too progressive, unfortunately, for that time. So she confronts. Right. Yeah. So she, she says, you know, oh, I, I thought so, and, you know, kind of comforts her. And Sister Kathy ends up actually, um, she and her roommate, I believe, leave and go start teaching at a public school. I mean, this is all very close um, timing together. Um, is contemplating, you know, is kind of in this pseudo relationship with this priest. Like and, an emotional relationship. Right. Yeah. And he says, I want to marry you. I don't want to, you know, let's not take our final vows sort of thing. So this is all going on, and then she goes missing. Um, And so Jean, this this initial victim that we're talking about, um, gets taken by Father Maskell to the woods, and he shows her Sister Kathy's body, rotting body, before it's found. 
maggots on her face and she's talking about trying to clear them away from her face and clean her up and she's just so traumatized and and they also bring that up later in the story about how when she's cross-examined by the church and we don't really have time to go into no. all the horrifics of what this poor woman went through who is also an amazingly resilient amazing woman that she can even I mean she's been through other other traumas in right. her life as well the death of her husband from you know protracted illness and but the idea one of the things was they tried to say that due to the weather at that time that she's lying there would not have been maggots right like this very forensic science yeah, very forensic approach where another and of course they got a really good expert who says no absolutely you you can i mean this is this is what's going on the body's basically fermenting and generating its own heat of course you can have right. maggots during this time right so but so to get back to the the DID this was sort of certainly not necessarily the um the uh, emergence of an altar, but certainly a, a perfect example of someone shutting down in order yep. to just just survive horrific trauma. Right. With this threat of, look, at, this is what happens when people talk. So, I mean, what is she going to do? Right. With, with what we're talking about, the power base, with being faced with, they literally killed, you know, this, this nun, and I'm next if I say anything about this. Wow. Um, right. So, I mean, just, I think it was in the hundreds of, um, women that eventually came forward after a number of years and the DA would not file the case. What was her name? I can't, I, you blocked it out. May is the last name. Stacy May. Is that what I said? That was the one that we, the one that I, that I just like, like I have a, a, a rage aneurysm about. Yeah. That's the one. Um, I think it's Stacy May. I'll look it up. She, I'm, uh, I'm almost completely speechless about um, how she presents on camera. She is so clearly not being truthful about this. If you, if you folks, if you've watched, I'd love to hear your comments um, about what you think. What episode is that that she's up on? Is that four? It's episode four. Um, yeah, I would just love the lay opinion because I immediately had such a, a negative response to her presentation. Oh, yeah. And sort of uh, in front of you misrepresenting information. And then the investigator that, you know, all these years later when these women are, are coming forward, um, he says anything we ever took to the to her that had to do with the church automatically would reject it. We yeah. could, we couldn't file anything. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I mean, I can I'm only speechless. speculate that she is, you know, on their payroll or whatever it is, but, um, yeah, it, it, it's awful. So they decide to go the route of, uh, a civil lawsuit. Um, and I mean, everyone from the school to the, particular people involved. There was a gynecologist that was also sort of in oh, this right. weird cult loop that they would take the girls to over and, and over them. again for examinations. Right. Yeah. It's time for your examination. Yes. Yes. Um, so that, that, you know, of course, if you haven't seen it, we want you to watch it all the way through and, and see sort of what the result of this is. But 
you know, there, there are gaps of time with these women that they can't remember. And it's, it's just a, unfortunately perfect storm for the symptoms that we talked about and the, the etiology of how a dissociative disorder would come up. Yeah. I mean, it's also just a horrific situation. It, it also makes me think of if this is an example of what we have seen, um, and we can see, and we can, you know, there are interviews we can, we can now, look at some objective examples of these just thinking about, well, how long has this been going on in, in other areas throughout history where women and um, marginalized communities have been traumatized sexually and physically and emotionally to this extent that will, you know, their voices will never be heard, Mm -hmm. which is just incredibly tragic, incredibly tragic. I wanted to go over one of the, the lists I found in doing some research that I found was really well done. It's it's a website called Ranker, and obviously it's a little bit of a clickbait, but they do some really great pulls of research from other areas. And they really, I, I got to say, I did not, I was not aware of a couple of these um, examples um, of dissociative identity disorder. And one of the things that's particular particularly pertinent to our podcast try saying that, <laughs> Say fast, that three times Mary fast. Poppins <laughs> is um, when DID has actually been successfully used as defense in a court case. Oh and, good. So yeah. we looked at it from a victim perspective and now let's look at it from a suspect perspective. Right. Because in, you know, in, like I was saying in prison, I had several inmates who were saying I didn't do it. It was Bob. Um, <laughs> but there in 1979, um, uh, there was uh, a, a woman who was uh, brutally murdered, uh, 73-year-old Ines Kelly. And uh, Juanita Maxwell has no memory of engaging in that crime. However, Wanda Weston, her alter, would oh. sit on the the witness chair or the witness, on the witness stand and gleefully recount all of the aspects of the murder. So they put her on the witness they put stand. Her, that would never happen today. Oh, God. That would never, no. never happen today. I guess it's a Hail Mary. Like, if, you know, we're yeah. going to put our suspect Let's on the witness stand, it. get up there and be your altar. And... Yeah. And it's fascinating reading. It's in the New York Times if anyone wants to check that out. So what happened with that case? Uh, she was acquitted. You're kidding. She's acquitted. Yeah. <gasps> wow. That would never happen now. Nope. I mean, that's that's definitely a sign of the times so that would never happen. Right. What's very fascinating is another case is the former NFL running back Herschel Walker right. um, wrote a book about really feeling that he has a true diagnosis of DID because he had so many physical and um, also a speech impediment when he was younger, like he was not a gifted athlete at all, but he feels like that he developed this hero slash warrior altar that as a coping mechanism for all the bullying that he experienced, that became the one that took over for him athletically and allowed him to achieve these great things, even winning so the Heisman Trophy. Did he win the Heisman Trophy? No, he didn't. That was OJ. No, he does. No, I'm, I'm reading it now. He doesn't even remember receiving the Heisman Trophy. Oh, doesn't remember He doesn't it. remember it. That's kind of crazy. Um, 
now he also got into some more traumatic behaviors, including like some suicidal ideation, playing Russian roulette and pulling a, a gun on his wife, pulling a gun on himself, threatening mm-hmm. suicide. And then he, you know, got psychiatric help. I'm interested. I mean, I, I can't get any more information on it, but I'm really interested in seeing if traumatic brain injury Correct. had anything That's... to do with this. We're seeing the prevalence of that in yeah. uh, football. So uh, we talked a little bit about the three faces of Eve. Actually, that's based on a a real person, a woman named Chris Costner Sizemore. She died in 2016, and she reportedly had actually 22 separate distinct personalities, although for the purpose of the movie, they boiled it down to three. There was one who was really interesting, like the banana split girl who would only eat the (laughs) banana splits, and the spoon lady who collected spoons. Can I just be the cheese girl? Oh, I'm going to be the hard cheese guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and she had she was the one that had was able to ex, uh, explain the experience that the personalities were in kind of a Greek arena. They all joined hands and then walked behind a screen, and then everything disappeared. They have never come back, which I thought was very interesting. I'm kind of rolling my eyes at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of I can hear him grinding. Yeah. Um, there's another, Karen Overhill is a very famous one. There's a woman in Britain named Kim Noble that actually, of all the ones I read, sounds really the most realistic uh, his, uh, history of trauma. Um, and she had she was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, but seems, seems quite legit. Any more where they were accused of crimes and used that as a defense? No, not that I can find. I mean, uh, there's... Uh, um, no. There's been like offshoots of it, you know, like like the sleepwalking defense or where people are oh, in these God. fugue stages, so right. they say, and they can't remember. I mean, I guess those are all sort of what they're trying to do here. Right. But Not you, necessarily multiple personality, but just the right. sort of amnesia. And you would want to look at that certainly through a fine diagnostic lens, I oh, would yeah. think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then uh, the, I didn't realize, it's interesting, I did not realize the name of Sybil, quote unquote, came mm-hmm. out. Her name was Shirley Mason, hmm. and she um, admitted to making it up in order to get attention from her her physician, Dr. Connie Wilbur. And they say physician, so I wonder if it was a psychiatrist. Probably an MD. Um, Wow. Yeah. What a cool wrap up. Yeah. Okay. So interesting stuff that we talked about, folks. We've got another thing very exciting. We have a guest here who's going to help us with our giveaway today. Yeah. So, um, so say hi. yeah. Come yeah. On, you want to say over hi? Here by me. Okay. Be careful of the cord. So say hello to everyone. Hi. What's your name? My name is Sydney. How old are you? Six. This is my daughter, so she, uh, Scott and I are babysitting slash podcasting at the same time. So we brought Sydney in today. She's been so patient with us. I'm, and... a, I'm a little disappointed that she hasn't learned how to mix me a Manhattan yet. Well, come on. She, she's ob- I watch videos with it. Yes, you no, do. No, I don't think you do. <laughs> I don't think you do. No, like, um, dance videos that... They take out the hand, they look at it. Oh, that part. Okay. Oh, and by the way, folks, she's only been in here for like one minute. So she was not listening to any of this. (laughs) We promise she was not exposed to any of this. Bad parent. So, okay. So our giveaway, um, this is like the mug scandal, right? So hang on. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Um, So 
a friend of mine that I actually worked at the police department with, Peggy, she was a dispatcher, um, started this company where she makes customized goods. She's done some hats and t-shirts for me and mugs. And I was scrolling through her Instagram recently and she had a mug and it said, this is my Hallmark channel Christmas movie watching mug. And I thought, think she could probably custom do one for us. So I immediately messenger messaged her and said, can you do one that says this is my Netflix true crime docuseries watching mug? And she was like, done. Absolutely. So but then, <laughs> but then, so I said, I want to order a couple, um, in, we want to give one away to one of our listeners. And she said, that would be great. Um, so we get them, we love them. Scott and I are using ours. Um, and then another podcast, Murder Dictionary, posts our giveaway information. And one of their thousands of followers, because they have a gazillion, says, Hey, this mug is awesome, but it says Netflix, not Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> no one, absolutely no one had brought this up. And not me. I didn't notice no, it. Oh, no. So, um, the mugs got fixed, as we announced the other day on our Instagram stories, and that's what we're doing the drawing for today. So we have people that have left us reviews on iTunes in here. If you have recommended us on Facebook, because a couple people made official recommendations, we included those folks, as well as people who did a Twitter shout-out um, asking that you know they, they want to see us at the True Crime Podcast Festival. So, we are going to pick a winner right now, Sydney. And you'll even get a sticker in it. Yeah, we'll send you a new sticker, too. So, let's see. Our winner here is... Let's open it up. Please tell me how it is Okay. So, from our Facebook recommendation... Vince Ogletree. Vince Ogletree for the win. Vince, yay. Yay, Vince, you're getting a mug. Yes, you're getting a mug um, personalized by Peggy on uh, Instagram if you guys want to get your own. Yeah, go ahead. Um, And then you can follow us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast. On Twitter, we're at LA Not So Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, And if you'd like to email us, LA Not So Confidential at gmail.com. And anything else to end with? I think we should help Sydney take us out. Do you know how to do that, Sydney? Can you help us at the end? Because we're going to. You and Uncle Scott? Okay. So you're going to say the. Okay. Okay. Over. Come over here. We'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Yay! See you next time, Bye, folks. Guys. We're here you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. confidential fans we are pleased to announce that we'll be making an appearance at the first annual true crime podcast festival in chicago in july 2019 the true crime podcast festival is going to be all about giving you access to your favorite true crime podcasts and interacting with your favorite hosts in one-on-one and forum meetings there will be panel discussions live tapings and of course meet and greet opportunities with yours truly Some of your other favorites will be there, like Swindled, Wine and Crime, The Fall Line, Canadian True Crime, and The Paranormal Chicks. For more information or to purchase tickets, go to www.tcfp2019.com. 
Be sure to mention LA Not So Confidential when you fill out the registration form.